Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. You have your Bible open to Genesis chapter 50. It's been good to go through the book of Genesis uh, the first two months of the year. I was glad when I turned my page this week in my reading to Exodus chapter 1. Always look forward to reading the next part of the story, but today we'll close out Genesis chapter 50. We'll remember... And you know, perhaps even you're in a season right now of hardship, but there comes a time when we face those hardships or trials, the testing of our faith, similar to what Joseph uh, has already experienced. And as we come to the, the end of Genesis, we remember that Genesis simply means the beginning. And we have seen from the beginning different times and people or groups that acted in an evil way, that their intention was not good, but rather it was wicked and evil. In fact, one of those first times we see that is when Cain killed his brother. Um, The the second time, though, where it specifically says and mentions evil is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where it says this, the Lord saw the human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. So we see that in Noah's day. Shortly after that, God had called Noah to build the ark. We also see in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot, Abraham's nephew, we see there two cities that are full of, uh, of evil. Um, there are other times, and certainly not the last time we'll see it in the Old Testament, where we see people acting in that way. And yet we his have seen and witnessed firsthand that God used these moments in Joseph's life specifically to, uh, to the good of those um, uh, in Joseph's life and, and even into an entire nation. The New Testament is not silent on this. In Romans 8, 28, it says that God will use all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We'll see how that plays out this morning in Joseph's life. If you would stand as I read from Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brothers' transgression and their sin the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him and bowed down before him and said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph and his father's family remained in Egypt. 
Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation. The sons of Manasseh's son, Micah, were recognized by Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. And Lord, we praise you for working all things for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. Father, it is my prayer for our church, your church, Coastal Oaks Church, that we would grow in grace and knowledge of your word, of your presence, and of your calling upon our lives. Father, that as we walk through this world, we will remember in the good and the bad that you are with us. And you are using those events and those moments in our life to shape us more like Christ. Teach us, Lord, this morning what we do not know. Provide for us what we need and make us what we are not yet. For your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. We see, once again, Joseph's brothers offer a plea for forgiveness. Jacob had died. If you go back to the end of chapter 49, working into chapter 50, we see there that Jacob dies. Now, before Jacob dies, he offers a blessing upon his 12 sons. Only two of those are rather positive blessings. The others are rather negative. But nonetheless, he also gives them instructions about his burial. And then in chapter 50... Jacob dies. So what's taking place in 15 is after the family has traveled back to the land of Canaan to bury Jacob, and now they have come back to Egypt. So there's been some time passed since dad has died. And when we see in verse 15, we find that his brothers are, are really unsure about Joseph. Did Joseph really mean all that he had said and done up to this point when Joseph revealed himself and revealed his identity to them? And he said, I'm your brother Joseph. You'll remember that from last week. Or is it now that dad is, di- uh, is gone, is the real Joseph going to, to come forward? Is the real Joseph now going to seek revenge on us for the hardship that we caused him earlier in his life? So what they're doing is they're assuming that somehow Joseph has suppressed his anger out of respect for Jacob, his father. And now he's going to turn on them. In fact, verse 15, they suppose... If Joseph is holding a grudge, some translations will say that he is holding the grudge. And so if or whether he is holding a grudge, that's their understanding, right? Let's think about that word grudge for a minute. That's a strong word. That's where they're thinking Joseph is. They're thinking in his heart, he is holding this grudge against them. Did you know that in order to hold the grudge, that that hostility and that anger has to be nursed? It has to be taken care of. It has to be fed. Okay, like when you get your yard ready or you go to get your garden ready, you don't just throw the seeds out there on the soil that's been sitting dormant through the winter months. No, no, no. You take, you take your tiller, you take your tools, and you start cultivating that soil, mixing it up, perhaps mixing in something, some good old manure that seems to always work, right? Or, or something. We put some kind of fertilizer in that to get it ready, and then we take great care to plant the seeds just right and everything in its place before we, uh, before we get our garden 
ready to start growing, right? So it, it, that it produces. That, that kind of nursing or the cultivating is what, what it takes to hold a grudge like Joseph is supposed to be holding, so it's, or at least that's what his brothers are thinking. To hold on to that hate, right? And it's fed, when you're holding that grudge, it's nursed by bitterness. Like it, it's, it's taken care of by bitterness. Bitterness is what feeds the grudge. The fruit of that cultivating, the, the fruit of that nursing, that bitterness and that grudge is that eventually it's going to turn out into hate. Hate is going to come out of, of his heart. And that's where Joseph's brothers suspect that he is. If he's holding that grudge, if since we dropped him in the well and sold him into slavery, if over those decades that Joseph has been away from us now that he's reunited, but, but if he has nulled, uh, uh, cultivated that grudge, that hate, that hostility. Now that dad is gone, he could exact his revenge on us. That's their thought. He must be in this state of mind. And with that, I would just simply remind you to be careful what you think someone else must be thinking. You cannot read their heart. You cannot read their intentions. Be careful what you think someone else must be thinking. Now, what they're thinking is not irrational, okay? Because any one of us would understand Joseph's situation, and any one of us would want justice for Joseph. That's what we would want. And if he sentenced them to slavery, or if he sentenced them even to death, we, most of us would probably agree that Joseph was justified in that decision. But that's not where Joseph is. And so what is driving their fear is, is coming from knowing that they have not suffered the consequences of their actions. They know they did evil. To Joseph. They know they did him wrong. They know they sinned against him. And Joseph has yet to exact revenge. He has yet to take out any wrath on them. They have not suffered for their actions. And it might even seem inconceivable that Joseph has not taken any action on them. He has not sought any kind of payment or penance on their part. He's just kind of sitting there and he's saying he forgives, but has he really forgiven? Joseph hadn't done anything to fan the flame of apprehension. We need to see that what's driving the brothers is their guilt. This is what's driving them. That's driving them to this feeling. And so in verse 16, they send word to to Joseph. They couldn't even go see him face to face. That's how afraid they were. Before he died, your father gave us a command. Now, it's interesting as you study on this that some say Jacob never spoke these words because it's not captured in his closing parts of his life. Others say it sounds like something Jacob could have said, um, and, and certainly he said it. Joseph, my take on it is Joseph received the message as if it was from Jacob, and so Jacob must have said something along these lines. But look at the message. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. That first request is made by Jacob. The second one in verse 17, therefore, please forgive the, the transgression of your servants. That's the brothers speaking. So the first appeal comes from Jacob. The second appeal comes from the brothers. The three uses of the words transgression, sin, harm, slash evil, or suffering, any way uh, that those are used in uh, in in that verse, they're directly related to one thing. That is the break in the relationship, the breach of relationship between the brothers and Joseph long, long ago. What they did and the actions they took, the transgression, the sin, and the evil, that they did broke that relationship. That is exactly what our sin does between us and God when we sin. 
It breaks that relationship. There is a breach of that relationship, broken by sin, and it's a relationship that needs to be restored. So when Joseph received that request from his brothers, what did he do? He wept. He cried. I suspect that he's crying and he's weeping because of the frustration that, one, his father still didn't understand him, still didn't trust him, and then, two, the, 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 the brothers didn't understand him either. They didn't understand his intentions. They didn't understand his heart. But I get it. I get it, and you get it too, because what we are taught in our natural, I think our natural response is return fire when fired upon we want to return fire. We want to hurt because hurt people hurt people. So that's why Jesus came teaching something totally different when he said, turn the other cheek. When he said, forgive as you've been forgiven. And when he asked, if, if you're asked to go one mile, go two. And so they bow down in verse 18 to him once again, just like his dream had, had said they would. They're, they're surrounding him in verse 18. His brothers came finally. They bowed down before him. And they said, we are your slaves. That which they sold Joseph into, they have now offered themselves to become. But what they fail to see, and I think what Joseph understands at this point, is that God's hand has been in their life and upon their life all the way through. If you go back to the time Joseph had that dream when he was a young boy, yeah, he probably should have kept his mouth shut and not bragged about it. But in that dream... The brothers were present. They have been through hardship too. They've been through, they've carried this burden that they lied to their father, that they tried to kill their brother and sold him off into slavery. They've been carrying that burden, that weight of sin. But also they've, also, they've been through a famine just like Joseph and the people of Egypt have been through. That's hard. When there's no rain and there's no food, what are you going to do? They've been through a hardship as well, but all this time, God has not only preserved Joseph so that he could preserve life by saving up in the storehouses of Pharaoh, but he's also preserved his brothers for this moment. He's brought both of them to this moment so that here in verse 19, Joseph can show them comfort, kindness, and provision. Look at this again. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me, but... God planned it for good, to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Verse 20 is one of the most important biblical, theological moments in Genesis, if not certainly in the top 10 in all of Scripture. And it comes in a couple of, a couple of waves. The first one, he says, don't be afraid. This is how Joseph offers comfort to the brothers. Don't be afraid. What are they afraid of? Well, they're afraid of losing their lives, for one, for what they did to him. They're afraid that he might throw them in prison or exact some other kind of revenge, some kind of payback, but that's, again, not how Joseph is responding. Jesus would often remind his disciples every time he appeared to them somewhere uh, in a rather in a miraculous way, I'm thinking walking on water with with them in the boat, Jesus would say that, don't be afraid. Post-resurrection, once he comes back to life on the third day, Jesus, when he appears to his disciples, he reminds them, don't be afraid. This is offering comfort. When God responds uh, to us, 
His response of mercy and grace is a way that he's saying, listen, don't be afraid. When we receive Christ as Savior and Lord of our lives, having trusted him for that salvation, we should be able to know and, and I think feel that we don't need to be afraid. But because God's mercy and his grace chase away that fear. Why? Because God has offered us that which we do not deserve. We don't deserve that. We should be afraid. But when we can encounter his grace and his mercy and the forgiveness of our sins, and we understand the love that he showed us at the cross, we understand, we come to a place where we have received that which we do not deserve, just like Joseph's brothers. God's grace and his mercy bring comfort to the sinner. That's exactly what Joseph is trying to do. Why is that? Because he says, am I in the place of God? Think about that question. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I the one that should judge and exact revenge and take my wrath out on you? He has no desire to play God. Man, Joseph has been blessed. Even in hardship, he's been blessed by the good hand of God. Even when he's been in prison, he was blessed by the hand of God, even in prison. So Joseph has come to a place where he understands, at least at this point, maybe somewhat limited still, but at least at this point, of who God is and who Joseph is not. Am I in the place of God? And then he gives this little testimony, this profound verse, in verse this profound truth in verse 20. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good. Now that's a man who's been through the trial and the testing of his faith. That's a man who's walked and been led by the good shepherd through the valley of the shadow of death. That's his testimony. Through the sins and evil of man, God somehow worked good. That to me and what he does in Joseph's life is one of the great mysteries of scripture. How does God take the evil intentions of man and use that for good? It's profound, but it's one that we hold to and we trust in as we ourselves are walking through the valley. But the result here is this. Look at the result. When God took what was evil, somehow worked it for good, here's, the, here's why. To bring about the present result, the survival of many people. I think it's important to note that Joseph, if, if he had taken revenge, if he had taken revenge in this moment, his brother's lives could have been lost. If Joseph had harbored bitterness in his heart, nursed it with hate, not just his brothers and their families, but the entire nation of Egypt would have been in trouble. But rather, he fostered forgiveness. He sensed God at work in his life. And the story is, is just so much bigger than Joseph's immediate family. But this process that God had brought him through, this, this plan, it all resulted in the survival, not just of the family, but of all of Egypt. And most likely, people from the land of Canaan, where Jacob's family was before they came to Egypt, most likely, those people came too, because there's food and plenty in Egypt. Egypt was the one prepared for it, because Joseph could interpret the dream that Pharaoh had. They had made provision. They had made preparation for that, that seven years of famine. So it's not just Jacob's family or Joseph's family. It's not just Egypt, but entire region. God used the evil intentions of his brothers for good. Verse 21, 
we find Joseph saying this, this provision. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them, excuse me, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Don't be afraid. There it is again. Therefore, don't be afraid. Because you planned evil against me, God planned it for good to bring about this result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of you. Rather than seek revenge, he offers kindness. Rather than take his wrath out on them and sentence them to a life of whatever, and rather than accepting their offers of being enslaved, he didn't assign that care to anyone else. He said, I will take care of them. He will personally guarantee the provision. I will take care of them. Friend, that is exactly what Christ Jesus has done for us. When he went to the cross, he saw our need. God sent him because God loved his creation and he still loves his creation. That anyone who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus said, I will take care of them. And he did it when he was on the cross. To close out chapter 50 and to close out this portion of the story, we see that Joseph is facing his own death after 110 years of life. What an exciting life and crazy life he had. But here we are in verse 24, and he says to his family, I'm about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land, to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's the promise. They don't know what's coming next. We do because we can read Exodus chapter 1. They don't know what's coming next. But when I read, God will come to your aid, it must mean that something hard is coming. But God will come and rescue. He's setting up the next part of the story, the story of the Exodus. He's getting them ready, but hear the promise. God will visit you. When you least expect it, when you think that he doesn't care about you anymore, when you spent years and years and years crying out to him and you've heard nothing, you've seen no change, friend, God will visit you. He will come to your rescue. Again, I submit to you, that is exactly what Christ has done for us at the cross. And in Christ, I want you to hear this this morning that you must trust the plan the process and the promises of God. I tried to give you three Ps so you could remember, okay? I'm not very good at that, but this week it worked out well. Trust the plan, the process, and the promises of God. Here's why. The plan of God, his plan includes all the events of your life to develop you into a mature follower of Christ for his glory and our, our good. Chapter 50, verse 20 is the key verse of Joseph's life. I really think that's exactly where God wanted us to end in verse 20. What you meant for evil, God used for good. It gives God the glory and it shows it was not just only for Joseph's good, but our good. Early on in the story that God was with Joseph, we've read that. Now at the end of the story, we still, we still see how Joseph understood that truth. That Joseph came to a place in his heart and his mind of deep trust in God's plan. That even if the circumstances or the people in his life betrayed him or, or their intentions were evil and their actions were evil and their intent was to hurt him and bring him harm when they committed sins against him, 
that God turned that for good. Let me share with you two other scriptures that support and, and really help us also understand verse 20. The first one is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. You could probably quote that if you spend any time in the Bible. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, this is one of those verses that we often use out of context. It gets taken out of context way too much, that it's, somehow it's an individual promise to me that God has great big plans that will help me fulfill all of my dreams and even get the American dream if I want to chase it, or that because of this great big promise, I have this great big awesome future ahead of me where I'll have nothing but success, nothing but bigger toys, more money, uh, uh, the perfect family, um, uh, but the context determines the meaning of that verse. And you need to read all of Jeremiah to understand Jeremiah 29, 11, really get the big picture. But if you just read chapter 29, you'll understand that what's about to happen to God's people known as the Israelites is that they are surrounded by evil Babylon. They are surrounded by Nebuchadnezzar and, and all of his forces. And Jerusalem is under siege. Jerusalem is under attack. An evil, pagan, godless Babylon is about to ransack Jerusalem and destroy the city. That evil Babylon, godless Babylon, is about to come in and pull people away from Jerusalem to, to take them to a home that is not their home, to, to take them to a, a foreign land. Jerusalem is going to be left in ruins. The temple will be destroyed. I mean, it's not going to be a good, good thing. And yet, when we come across verse 11, we read that God is saying to his people, even when it seems like you are surrounded by evil and darkness and a godless society is attacking you and going to pull you away, even then, you should remember that I have a plan for you, that I have a plan for your well-being and not for disaster, to give you a hope and a future. That points us to Christ, not to our dreams being fulfilled. It points us to Jesus Christ. That's where that hope, that's where that future comes from. Because in Christ, we are all like that still in a foreign land, that we are not home. But he says, don't be afraid. I know the plans for you. Friend, that calls us to a deep trust in God's sovereignty, deeper than anything you'll ever know. Think about them for a minute. Jerusalem is being laid to waste. There's nothing left. They're going to be held captive for a long time in a foreign land. You will not be home. But God says, I have a plan for this. The plan was good. The plan was for peace. The plan was for a future and a hope. Now you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they're part of this story in Babylon, once they go, you think they knew that? You better believe they knew that. They were in the fire for it. That's why they stood and wouldn't bow to worship another god. You think Daniel understood that when he was in the lion's den. You better believe it. They held on to that, even though they were living in a godless society. They knew it, and they believed it, and they trusted it. Please, 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 I beg you, do not believe that this verse is telling you that you are shielded from hardship and misery. This verse is meant to walk you through that, to remember that there is a future hope in Christ Jesus. Those moments that we walk through of hardship and trial and evil when, when evil comes and visits us in our life, rather than complaining that we stand with confidence in Christ and we can proclaim whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Friend, God uses 
these moments to conform us to the image of Christ. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is the second verse in relation to 5020. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now that truth is followed by this powerful uh, truth uh, through the end of Romans chapter 8. You, you know those verses. Who can separate us from the love of God? But listen to what else Paul says right after verse 28. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is God's plan for your future. That is his hope. That is what he's talking about in 29.11. To be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? So everything that happens to those who love God, those who are in Christ, whether we consider it good or bad, they work together for their good and God's glory. But the question is, what is that good referring to? Is that the, tr- the trouble ends And we have some peace for a moment until trouble visits us again. What is that good he's referring to? Well, verse 29 answers that question. If you've ever wondered what the good is, it's found in verse 29. To be conformed to the image of his son. That you, the sinner, me, the sinner, who do not deserve that grace, And that mercy, that God would shape our life and conform us to the image of Jesus? I can think of nothing greater, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, not conformed to earthly comforts, but to the eternal Christ. Then to imitate or to cultivate, rather, a close fellowship with God. Remember that word grudge? This would be the opposite of holding a grudge, nursing bitterness. This would be the opposite of that, to to cultivate a growing, close fellowship with God so so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You get the picture of the family. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he's glorified. That's the, the end game that there's fruit bearing for the kingdom and finally that glorification at the end when we become like him as he is. That's the good plan. That's how God, that's that's his intention, taking what is evil in this world and turning it to good for the good of those who love him, for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, called in Christ. So not only do we need to trust his plan, which includes all the events of our life, but we also need to remember this, that God's process involves just the ordinary events of our life to develop you into a mature follower of Christ for his glory and our good. God's process involves the ordinary events. Listen, if you put all of these three verses together, you understand that God's greatness does not limit him to only performing the miraculous. 
but also that God is intimately involved in our daily life. This is exactly what Andy was praying for earlier. That God is involved in our daily life and he's involved in the lives of those around us, which is why we must share the gospel. But he is so intimately involved in our daily life and sometimes we are so busy looking for the miracles that we miss the ordinary. I love worship music. I love to worship have reason to worship. It's an important part of each one of our lives, but if you only listen to what's on the radio, sometimes I get the feeling I have to turn it off sometimes because I only, I feel like all I have to do to be a good Jesus boy is to always expect miracles and look for the miracle. Where's the miracle? And you start wondering, oh, wait a minute, if God's not working a miracle in my life, what's wrong with me? But friend, I want you to know that God is involved in your life every single day. Listen to this. When you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the ground, yeah, the muscles may hurt and the joints may creak a little bit, but there's a promise in Lamentations. Beautiful promise. You know it. His mercies are new every morning. That's a miracle. But that's also the ordinary, isn't it? We wake up every morning. God is actively engaged and involved in our life. So don't doubt God's presence in your life if you don't ever see the miraculous happen. We need to worship him every single day of our life anyway, but this process that he uses, the ordinary events of our life to shape us into Christ's followers, they're all around us. That doesn't always sell a book or make a song popular on the radio. You don't ever hear a song hardly about the ordinary. But he's there, and I don't want you to miss it. Don't overlook the simple ways that God's processes take us into the journey of discipleship. This is one of the most important truths of the experiencing God study from over 30 years ago when I was a young teenager and went through it the very first time is that God is always at work around you, and he invites you to join him in that work. Don't miss God in the normal ebb and flow of your life. Just look at Joseph. There's not much about Joseph that is miraculous, but you see God's hand in his life, don't you? He never takes a staff and sets it in the Red Sea and the waters split apart. Joseph never called down plagues on Egypt like Moses did. Joseph never called down fire on the mountainside to consume the altar that had been soaked in blood and water. But Joseph's testimony is what you meant for evil, God used for good. He's one of the most ordinary guys so far in Genesis, and yet God used him in such a way that he is probably, arguably, the most mature man in the book of Genesis, spiritually speaking. Listen, everyday, everyday parts of our life, he's there. Matthew chapter six, Jesus reminded us when, when we were to pray, Give us this day our daily bread. We're praying for that sustenance. We're praying not just physical sustenance, but spiritual sustenance. Give us this day our daily bread. And then he goes on to say, but why are you worrying about, what, what are you worried about? He talks to us about worrying. He says, listen, the birds of the air have what they need, the grass, the lilies of the field, the flowers, they've all got what they need. What are you worried about? Instead, you should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I love what Robert Mounts calls worry. He says, worrying is practical atheism. 
Worrying is forgetting about that God is involved in your daily life. Friend, the processes of God involve our daily, ordinary lives. So when you pray, give us this day our daily bread, we pray, bread of life, come and fill me. Third, his promises point you to hang on to hope because he will complete the work of Christ's likeness. Listen again to verse 29 of Romans 8. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He's predestined. It means he's planned ahead of time to be, for us to be conformed to the image of his son. His plan, his process, and his promise are all grounded in Christ, all fulfilled in Christ, all finished in Christ. And his promise is that he will get you where he wants you to be. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 promises that. Paul said, he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So hear me say, because the Bible says it, that if you are in Christ, you can be certain that everything that's happening in your life, even the evil that you might experience, will work out for his glory and your good. You may not know it tomorrow when you want to know. You may not know it now when you want to know. But it may be 20 or 30 or 40 years from now that you look back and understand what God was doing, and you can see how his hand was guiding you. Friends, Joseph believed it, and it changed his life, and it will change your life if you will believe in Jesus Christ and trust him for the salvation of your soul and the forgiveness of your sins. It allowed Joseph, rather than holding that grudge and letting hate come out and wrath come out, it allowed him to comfort his brothers and truly forgive them that God preserved his life, their life, and through Christ today preserves our life. The question is for you, will you believe it? Do you believe it? This is where Jesus, who was sent to preserve life as the bread of life, the living water, the lamb of God, he too endured the evils of people. He was innocent yet nailed to the cross. And he bore the wrath of God on the cross for your sin and mine. That if you would believe in him today, you would know the goodness of God. 